an elderly gentleman went to the doctor and he said, you know, I don't think my wife's hearing is as good as it should be. What should I do? And the doctor replied, well, why don't you try this out to find out for sure? When your wife is in the kitchen doing dishes, stand about 15 feet behind her and ask her a question. If she doesn't respond, keep moving closer, asking the question until she hears you. So the man went home and he sees his wife preparing dinner. He stands 15 feet behind her and says, what's for dinner, honey? No response. He moves to 10 feet behind her and asks again. No response. Five feet, no answer. Finally, he stands directly behind her and says, and asks, honey, what's for supper? She says, for the fourth time, I said chicken. <laughs> now, loss of hearing is one form of suffering, but it's not all. We experience many kinds of suffering in this life, physical suffering, mental, emotional. And whether we like to admit it or not, though, we all go down physically as we age. You know you're getting older when? You know you're getting older when? Your dreams are reruns. It takes two tries to get up from the couch. It takes longer to rest than it did to get tired. It takes twice as long to look half as good. Everything hurts, and what doesn't hurt doesn't work. You give up all your bad habits, habits and you still don't feel good. <laughs> you sit in a rocking chair, and you can't get it going. And if you get it going, rocking in the chair feels like a roller coaster ride. And lastly, your knees buckle and your belt won't. And if any of these make you groan, that's the whole point, because that's the main point of Romans chapter 8 and verses 18 through 27. Everybody and everything is groaning. In verse 22 of Romans chapter 8, the whole creation groans. Verse 23, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. And if that weren't enough, look at verse 26. Verse 26 of Romans chapter 8. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings. Groanings too deep for words. Now, the key to understanding what it means to groan as believers is the Greek word that's translated groaning. The verb form is stenazo, stenazo, S-T-E-N-A-Z-O in English. The noun is stenagmas. It means to sigh or to groan, to sigh or to groan. And, and basically, those who study ancient Greek tell us that it's the groanings or the sufferings of one who is trapped, one who is trapped in an undesirable circumstance, one who is caught in an undesirable situation which has no alleviation. You don't see any way out. It's the sign of one who wishes for a better fate, a better place. And it's used, for example, in Acts chapter 7, verse 34. You don't need to turn to it, but this is where the first martyr, Stephen, is reciting something of the history of God's people in the Old Testament, where the Lord says... I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans. And I have come down to rescue them. Come now and I will send you to Egypt. And that, of course, is the Lord's word to Moses. 
The Lord heard their groaning. They were groaning and sighing because they were in an undesirable circumstance. They were slaves in Egypt from which they sought to be delivered. And stenazo is also used in Mark chapter 7, verse 34. Again, you don't need to turn to it, but this gives us some more insight into the meaning of the word. In Mark 7, 34, Jesus is healing a deaf man. And Jesus touched his ear, and it says, looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, stenazo. Jesus said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open. The Lord sighed with a deep sigh. That's our word, stenazo. He groaned. Because here the Lord was confronted with an undesirable circumstance. It was undesirable in somebody else's life. Deafness is an undesirable circumstance. And it caused our Lord to groan. So it's the kind of groaning, the kind of sighing that comes to someone who is in a circumstance that's not only undesirable, it can be very hard and despairing. It's the longing of a soul waiting to be delivered from present circumstances. And that's why the Apostle Paul personified creation, personified creation where all creation groans. All creation is in an undesirable circumstance from which it wants to be delivered. On account of sin, creation is cursed. It's subjected to futility. It is corrupted and moving deeper into corruption, and it wants to be delivered. It wants to be set free, as it says in Romans, from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so stenazo is the sign of a longing soul that is desiring relief. And that's precisely how the word is used in the text before us. In Romans chapter 8, we see groaning. The whole creation would like a change in its condition. We ourselves groan within ourselves. We too would like deliverance from our present circumstances. And then verse 26 reminds us the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep from words. In all of these cases, there is a discontent with the situation that people or something is in. The creation wants to change. Believers want to change. And even the Holy Spirit longs for a change. The Holy Spirit wants the fulfillment of God's intended and ultimate final purpose for us. And so in Romans chapter 8, verses 23 to 25, we come to the sufferings and the glory of God's children and to our groanings. This is our groaning for glory as believers. So look at verse 23 of Romans chapter 8. Again, the 23rd verse of the 8th chapter of Romans. Having written that all creation groans, Paul adds in verse 23, and not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. This points to the dilemma that we are in as Christians and the source of what it is that makes us groan. We are caught in a tension between what God has already inaugurated, what God has already done, what he's already done in and to us and for us. We're caught in that what God has already done and between what he will do, what he will consummate, what he will bring about at a future time In other words, what God has not yet done. In other words, God has already given us what Paul calls here the first fruit, first fruits of the Spirit. We'll look more at that in just a little bit. 
We have already been adopted into the family of God. We are his children. But our final adoption, that is what Paul calls here the redemption of our bodies, in the sense of being delivered from these earthly bodies that wear out and have disease, which are frail, they're degenerating, they're prone to disease, all of that is yet to come. So we do not yet have our glorified bodies, which are suited for heaven's glories. So in the meantime, we groan with discomfort. We groan with longing. The indwelling Spirit of God gives us joy, and the coming glory gives us hope. But the interim suspense gives us pain. It's what John Stott has called our half-saved condition. And being a good Reformed theologian, he knew that people are going to have trouble with that idea of a half-saved condition. Because our souls are saved, we are fully and completely saved for all eternity. Remember, Paul started out Romans chapter 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Never, ever, ever will be. And he ends, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. There's no separation. Our souls are saved. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God who is given to us as a pledge. We are a new creation. The old has passed away. We have a new nature. And all of that is seed, as it were, that has been planted in a shell called the flesh. The Spirit has taken up residence in us and pledged us our future glory. We have been changed. We have been transformed. We have a new nature. We become new creatures but we are still locked into this unredeemed flesh, and that is the tension. That is the half-saved condition that John Stott talks about. That is what makes us groan. And so in verses 23 to 25, Paul highlights different aspects of our condition by five affirmations. And first of all, caught in this tension, he says, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Verse 23 again, the, the first part. And not only this, but we also ourselves having the first fruit of the Spirit. Now, the word that is translated first fruits is a parquet. You don't need to remember that word. It won't be on the test. But a parquet refers to that which was both the beginning of the harvest and the pledge that the full harvest is going to come in. For the past several days, we've been experiencing the first fruits of our, first, of our fruit trees. We have gone out and picked the few peaches that were ripe. The harvest has just begun. We get a few here and there. And, and we've talked about our, our peach tree because we call it the Charlie Brown peach tree. Why? Because it's like his Christmas tree. Remember that? Jan got it at the end of, of summer one year and late fall and brought it home and do a little stick sticking up. And going, what is that? Well, this is a peach tree. I just paid whatever, a couple of bucks or something for it. You know, so we planted this peach tree. And the next year, it had three or four peaches on it. You know? <laughs> and even as we got all the peaches off of it this year, I'm looking at that thing and going, I put up 12 sticks to hold up those branches because it's got these tiny little branches and it was just loaded. And we started enjoying going out the first fruits. We knew those are the first fruits because we could look at the tree and go, man, this thing's loaded with peaches. It's going to really, you know, never, those of you who have given peaches to you go, those are good peaches. They were tiny little things because that's all the poor little tree could do was hundreds of tiny little, little things. But the first fruit is the pledge, the promise that the full harvest is going to come, which it pretty much did this last week. 
And now we're to the groanings of what do we do with the pears and the peaches and the canning? <laughs> do we do this or that with them? But you know, there's going to be a full harvest because of the first fruits. So the first fruits refers to both the beginning of the harvest and the pledge or the promise that the full harvest is going to take place in due time. We are given the Holy Spirit as a pledge, as a first fruit, meaning that the full harvest of everything that God has for us is going to take place. Now, replacing this agricultural metaphor with a commercial one, in a second letter to the Corinthians, Paul also described the gift of God's Spirit as an Erebon. And I'm only quoting the Greek to show you that these are different words. And an Erebon is the first installment, the deposit, the earnest money, the down payment, the pledge, which guarantee the future completion of the purchase. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul said, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Even though we have not yet received our final adoption, that is the redemption of our bodies, we have already received the Spirit as both a foretaste and a promise of these blessings. But now, because now we are in Christ, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits meaning the down payment, the deposit, the guarantee. The Spirit has taken up residence in us and pledged that he will fulfill our future glory. We have been changed, we have been transformed, we have our new creations, but we're still locked in this unredeemed flesh. And so being caught in the tension, that is why we groan. We groan inwardly. Verse 23 of Romans chapter 8 again. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. And now the very presence of the Holy Spirit being only the first fruits is like the first fruits of everything else. We're, we're anxious for the full fruit, but we're not there yet. Since we have the Spirit, it's a constant reminder of that completeness that we will share in Christ, in glory. We experience the first fruits, and that gives us a taste of what's yet, in, willing to come, or yet to come, but it's not there yet. And so we share with creation in this frustration, the bondage to decay and pain and getting old. And so one reason for our groaning is our physical frailty and our, our mortality. Turn over to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. We visited this passage not too long ago, just a couple of weeks ago, and we seem to come to it on a regular basis. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, page 14, 16 in the, the Bibles in the racks. Here our earthly bodies, as you know, are referred to as a tent. A tent which is being destroyed, going to be destroyed torn down, wear out, while our glorified bodies are referred to as a building from God, a permanent residence, a house not made with hands. So he says in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for we know that if the earthly tent, that is our bodies, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And then verse 2 refers to the groanings that we have in this body. For indeed in this house we groan. 
Now, if we're in one of those talkback churches, I'd say, okay, everybody groan right now because we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. While we are in this earthly tent, we stood not so. It's the sign, it's the groan. We want to be relieved from these present painful circumstances. We want to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. We want to shed this old tent. What Tennessee Ernie Ford called this old house. The shutters are worn out, the windows are broke out, all kinds of stuff. We can't see out the windows. In verse 4, it refers to the groaning again. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up with life. This is our longing. This is our desire to be relieved from this. We're trapped in these earthly bodies. And so caught in this tension, so now we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Back to verse 23 of Romans 8 again. At the end of verse 23, we groan within ourselves what? Waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Here, it's our adoption that has to do with the redemption of our body. Our souls have been redeemed. But we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies, which will fully complete our adoption. This gives us a clear insight into our salvation, our adoption as God's children. The inner part of us is redeemed. The inner part of us is fit for heaven. It's ready for heaven. We want to go to heaven. We want to experience that. And all God has to do now is take part, take care of the outer part. We ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for adoption. You say, well, I thought we've been talking about it in Romans. Aren't we already adopted? Yes, that's right. We're adopted on the inside, but we're waiting to be adopted fully on the outside. Put it, Paul put it another way in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the... Anybody remember what it says? Transform the what? It's not the soul. The soul is already transformed. Will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity of the body of His glory... We will have a transformed body that's going to be in conformity with the body of the glory of Jesus Christ's glorified body by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Our bodies will be transformed into conformity with the glorified body of Jesus Christ. Well, what's that body going to be like? We wonder that, don't we? Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 15, begin at verse 35. We don't know everything or hardly anything about our glorified bodies. We really don't know much at all except it's going to be spectacular. And it definitely won't be the bodies we have now. Amen. That's going to be, a, that's going to be spectacular. And in verse 35 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is discussing what resurrection bodies are. And he says at the end of verse 35, and with what kind of body do they come? In other words, what do our redeemed bodies look like? What kind of body are we going to have? And in verse 36, Paul says, that's a silly question. 
How do I know that? He starts out in verse 36, you fool. Okay, those are Paul's words, not mine. Okay, Paul's words. Now, why is this a silly or foolish question? He says in verse 36, you fool. That which you sow does not come to life until it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished. And to each of the seeds, a body of his own. Now, for those of us who aren't farmers, say a guy comes and he dumps a pile of seeds into your hands. And you've got a different kind of seed, different big pile of seeds there, maybe 40, 50, 100, I don't know how many seeds you could fit in your hands. But you look at them and everyone is different. Every seed is different. Have you got any idea, if you're not a farmer, by looking at that seed, what it's going to look like when it grows? You have no idea. You don't have any idea. You couldn't tell a weed seed from any other seed. And I'm of the opinion that every weed let it go long enough, and Idaho will call it a wildflower. And then they'll protect it legally. <laughs> anyway, that's off the subject. But you can have an assortment of all kinds of things from a small seed small weed to a giant tree that's in your hand, a tiny little seed, and you wouldn't know the difference. And Paul is saying here, you're asking me to tell you by looking at the seed, the seed of your glorified body, what it's going to look like. And he says, you fool, that's a silly question. Because I don't have any idea, you don't have any idea, only God knows. So he says, but don't imagine that God can't do it. Because he says in verse 39, All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There's a monumental scientific statement here. And it all has to do with the different combinations of amino acids. Amino acids, which there are so many and there's combinations, and, but without amino acids life is, is impossible. And we know from amino acids that flesh will only produce flesh like its own flesh, after its own kind. Put it this way. If you eat chicken all your life, you're not going to get feathers. How do we know that? Because we know that the amino acids that we take in are converted into who we are. Isn't that an amazing thing? People say there's evolution. Well, go figure that one out. And it just keeps going that way. And God has designed systems. In fact, the combinations of amino acids are 600 octodecillion combinations. Now, if you live in the United States, that's 600 with 57 zeros after the end of it. If you live in Europe, it's 600 with 108 zeros. I have no idea. It must be the European Union or something and the exchange rate of, of amino acids. I don't know why we look at it differently. 600 octocotillion combinations, 600 by followed by zero zeros, and there's no way that any combination is going to be produced alike. And God has so much variety, and Paul is saying there's a variety of kinds of flesh. Who are we to speculate? It's foolish to even speculate. Then he says in verse 40, 
There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. And then verse 41, he says, there's the glory of the sun, there's the glory of the moon, there's the glory of the stars, and one star, every star is different from any other star. And so he says, it is the same way in the resurrection. Don't ask me a silly question, Paul says, but I'll tell you one thing in verse 42. Verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. The idea of the dead body goes into the ground. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. I don't know what all it is, but it's truly exciting. It's spectacular and it's glorious. You know, I don't know anything more about this except if we looked at the resurrected Jesus Christ. He still had nail prints in his hands. The scars were still there. He looked like Jesus looked, only people couldn't recognize him unless he allowed them to, which happened on at least two occasions. He walked through walls. He ate and he moved himself around without walking. He instantly showed up and then he instantly disappeared. So if you follow the resurrected Jesus around a little bit, we might get a little bit of idea what our resurrected bodies are going to be like. And then when he got ready, he just flew up to heaven, sent to the right hand of God, perhaps in an instant, but the possibilities are endless. The truth of the matter is we have to wait to find out. And it tells us in verse 51 here of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that we'll all be changed. See that in verse 51? We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Verse 52 says, then we're going to be raised imperishable or incorruptible. That's where we get our, that's where we lose our humanness. Because in our humanness, we are corruptible. We are decaying. We, we lose it. We lose the flesh. We lose the body. We're raised incorruptible. We are changed. Verse 53, corruption puts on incorruption. Mortal puts on immortality. Verse 54, at the end, death is swallowed up in victory. No more death. That's what we have to look forward to. That's what we have to look forward to. And that's why even though we are caught in this tension, what will be but not yet, Paul says, in this hope we are changed. Back to verse 24 of Romans chapter 8. Verse 24, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? We were saved, or have been saved, past tense. In the Greek, it's in the aorist. That means in a point in time, past tense, we were saved. Settled. Settled in heaven, settled on earth, settled forever. It bears witness to our decisive past liberation from the guilt and the bondage of our sin and from the just judgment of God upon them. Yet, in that regard, we only remain half saved because our salvation was planned in the past, bestowed in the present, but we are given hope for the future. 
We were saved to hope. Have you ever thought about security in our salvation going along with the promise of hope? When salvation came, hope just came with it. Because that's part and parcel with it. Hope is an ingredient that's inseparable from our salvation. And that's what we've been seeing in Romans and the rest of Scripture. That's why Jesus said, All that the Father gives to me shall come to me, and I've lost none of them. Not a one. Not a single one. Everyone who comes to him is held by him because we are saved in hope. Let's turn over to John chapter 10 at verse 24 for a moment. Tenth chapter of John, where he's talking about being the good shepherd. Beginning at verse 24. The 24th verse of John chapter 10, it's on page 1320. And in this is a, a heated discussion with the Jews. And the discussion ends with the Jews wanting to kill Jesus. So that must have been pretty heated. But Jesus connects our eternal security to the great truth that he and the Father are one. Are he and the Father one? Yes, amen. So we are eternally secure in them. So I want to begin with verse 24 of John 10 because it puts it in that context. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. I tried to give a little bit of a sense of how they were asking that question. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. Present tense. When did eternal life begin for you? the moment you received Jesus Christ and started following him. You're already living for eternity, but we're still stuck here, aren't we, in this body. But then he says, I give eternal life to them, and what? They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You know, I like the example that we've used before. You know, we're in safe in the hand of Jesus, and nobody can pry the fingers loose. But think of Jesus holding a sheep. How would he be holding that sheep? Nobody can snatch them out of my hand. And then he says, my father who has given them to me, the father took each one of us, gave us to Jesus Christ, is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Listen. When you were saved, your soul was saved. You were saved and you are safe in God, safe and secure in God's hand. But you were not only saved to experience immediately the reality of soul salvation, but you were saved to go on experiencing the hope, the hope of bodily salvation. We're saved in hope. I remember that bumper sticker and sometimes I argued with it when I'd see it on the road and I don't think we have enough bumper stickers anymore. I think we need bumper stickers. Remember that bumper sticker? Please be patient with me because God is not done with me yet. Amen? That's it. That's right. And in Hebrews chapter 6, it says we've been anchored. One more scripture passage here, maybe. Hebrews chapter 6. This is one of the great affirmation texts. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 17. 
page 1463. The 17th verse of Hebrews chapter 6, it says, In the same way God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise. Okay, who's the heirs of the promise? We are the heirs of the promise. Put yourself in there. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to you, the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. God, through hope, has anchored our souls in him. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. In other words, in the veil, a hope that is anchored and takes us into the presence of God. Our hope is an anchor. And so lastly, caught in the tension of the in-between time, Back to Romans chapter 8, verse 25. We wait for the fulfillment of our hope patiently or with perseverance. Romans 8, 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. We are confident in God's promises that the first fruits will be followed by the harvest. Bondage is going to be followed by freedom. Decay will be followed by incorruption and labor pains by the birth of the new world. This whole section of scripture is a good example of what it means to be living in the in-between times. Between present difficulty and future destiny. Between the already and the not yet. Between suffering and glory. The phrase, we are saved in hope, brings this all together. And in this we wait eagerly with keen expectation. Patiently. End with this. The famous preacher D.L. Moody told about a Christian woman who was always bright. She was cheerful. She was optimistic. Even though she was confined to her room because of an illness. She was a shut-in. She lived in an attic apartment on the fifth floor of an old run-down building. And a friend decided to visit her one day. And the friend brought along another woman who was a person of great wealth. And since there was no elevator in the building, the two ladies began the long climb upward. And when they reached the second floor, the well-to-do woman commented, what a dark and filthy place. And the friend replied, it's better higher up. And when they arrived at the third landing, the remark was made, things even look worse here. Again, the reply, well, it's better higher up. The two women finally reached the attic level where they found the bedridden saint of God. A smile on her face radiated the glory and filled her heart. And although the room was clean and there were flowers on the windowsill, the, the wealthy visitor could not get over the stark surroundings in which this woman lived. And she blurted out, it must be very difficult for you to be in here like this. And without a moment's hesitation, the shut-in responded, it's better, higher, up. She was not looking at temporal things. With an eye of faith fixed on the eternal, she had found the secret of true satisfaction and contentment. For though we, therefore we do not lose heart, 
Though the outer man is decaying, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. For a momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Shall we pray? Father, you have given us a wonderful day today. It started out talking in Sunday school class, in our Sunday school classes, about what the glories of heaven are going to be. And even there, we talked a little bit about what it's going to be like. We, we speculated, we, we thought in hope. And now as we come into your word and worship today, Lord, we have, we've seen the same thing. Father, I thank you that our hope is anchored. It's our hope that anchors our soul. And Father, I pray that when we groan and when we sigh and we desire to be delivered from these circumstances that we are in and trapped in these earthly bodies, Father, I thank you for the hope that you have given us in Jesus Christ. And I thank you for that which you have given to us for all eternity. And in many ways now we can only speculate we do not know, having put that seed into the ground, what is going to come because you are our loving, faithful God as we will enjoy your presence and have bodies suited for all the glories of heaven forever and ever. Amen.